You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. One thing that I left out that we have accomplished is that we finished the Gospel of John and we started and finished the letters of John. So, as I have the privilege of starting us off in our new sermon series through the book of Hosea this morning, I thought it'd be good since we've been in the New Testament for so long, over a year and a half, nearing two years, I thought it'd be good for us to kind of hit the pause button, refresh our minds a little bit, and do a flyby of where we're at in the text. Before that, this where we're at, and this is an incredible story. Hosea is an incredible story, but it's also a very real story. This story is very real, and it deals with real heartache and real pain and real adult issues, as you heard on the screen, right? Hurt and pain, heartbreak, the consequences of sin in one's life, and that picture of how it affects other people. I'm blessed to be married to uh, the lovely Kat Barton. Shout out to my wife. Uh, we have six, six kids at home. And so she is back there with them. But I can remember the day that I proposed to her. And if I'm honest, I can remember the day that I proposed to her a little bit more than uh, our wedding day. (laughs) Because the wedding day was just like a blur and it was crazy, you know, and pictures and get here, get there, do this, do that. But the day that we were engaged, I had a day planned and it culminated in me getting down on a knee and asking her to marry me. And once the initial shock of all of it subsided, we called friends, we called family, and we told them the news, and it was really, really exciting. And kind of after the dust uh, settled, I, over, I was overjoyed. We were overjoyed and kind of in a rush of emotions, you know, the mixture of excitement and nervousness, and I just committed to this, and, uh, but it's, I really, really love this woman, right? All of this was kind of hitting me, and uh, I started crying, okay? Admittedly, this probably isn't a good look uh, if you just get engaged, you know, maybe not the best of looks, but what I assured her that it was, it was a good, I was simply overjoyed. I was overjoyed that she said yes to spending the rest of her life with me. I, the, the patterns of brokenness and distrust that I had surrounding commitment and marriage in my life had been quieted, and I remember being overwhelmed in a good way, thinking that the rest of my life I get to spend with this woman, writing a story of beginning a family and and raising our kids in the Lord and, and walking out our faith together. It was really, really exciting and really, really emotional. But as phone call after phone call after phone call happened, I began, just kind of came to the realization that like my life is changed, you know? It is no longer just me. It is like me and her. Everywhere and everything we do is changed. Like from the big stuff to the small stuff, you know? And this might be a small thing for you, but it was a big thing for me. Like one example of something that changed drastically. It's like I, I, was having, this is maybe a little bit more of an intimate detail, but I, I had a five-in-one shampoo, conditioner, body wash, face wash, and shaving cream, okay? 
I, all, five in one. I don't know if there was a single like organic molecule in that stuff, but I love that stuff. One thing that changed for me is that uh, now my body wash today is just body wash, and I legitimately, there's things in it that I have never heard of, okay? White lavender, I thought lavender was purple, but they have, there's the white kind as well, and then ashwagandha, I had no idea, smells fantastic, I enjoy it, but I, I kid, but I'm saying like, the story that is being written, everything has changed about my life. Everything was becoming new, and I couldn't wait to start writing this story with my bride. You see, God's relationship with the nation of Israel is a love story that has spanned not just 13 years, like my case, but has spanned over centuries. And as we jump into Hosea today, i got to imagine it's not the storybook ending or beginning that he hoped for. So, as we read, there's some very strong language throughout this book, okay? And that is not hyperbole. This summer, uh, my family and I, we took a trip to the Ark Encounter uh, over in Kentucky, and I highly recommend it. It's uh, kind of the the biblical dimensions. It's to scale. It's incredible. It's jarring, uh, but I highly recommend it. And one thing that I really appreciated was there's, uh, there's obviously parts marketed towards children. And so at all of these little cutouts or sections of uh, where there's kids' books or, you know, dioramas in kind of a cartoony fashion or like toy animals, you know, depicting the ark, there are every single one of these places, there's warnings. And on these warnings, they are warning everyone, saying things like, although these books are marketed towards children, there's a danger when we stylize Scripture, when we soften the edges of Scripture because we could lose its intended meaning or even lose the character of God when we do this. So this is very, very important. So as we read through Hosea, there is some adult language, and I'm, we're not going to soften it because I, I contend to you that if we think of God more lowly than he is, we run the risk of compromising on our sin, compromising on our uh, the consequences of our sin. It's, it's not that big of a deal, right? When we lower God to our level, we run the risk of this. I was talking to Willis this week, and I was like, you know, it doesn't matter the offense so much as it matters the person of the offense that changes your consequences, right? I was telling him, like, Willis, if me and him got in a fight, we slugged it out, and I caught him in the chin, you know, we might... We might be mad at each other for a few hours, but then at the end of it, we're probably going to handshake, give hugs. We'll probably crack open a cold one together, something like that, right? But now if I did the same thing, I cracked a police officer over the chin. That's a different story, right? Now if I take it a step further and I crack the president of the United States, I probably wouldn't get you know, a chance, right? Secret Service would jump on me, but you get the picture. Depending on who you offend, determines the consequence of your sin, right? When we stylize, when we soften Scripture, we take God out of the place of holiness and reverence that it is. And we make Him small, because ultimately we want to be God. In this, 
we run the risk. So, as we read this book, in the language of fins, I offer that there is bigger offense to be had on the part of God. And I don't say that callously, because I know there might be little ears in the room, so I just want to, as a pastor, shepherd you into, you might need to explain some very hard things as we read this book. So, we read it, we're going to jump into verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. This is kind of a brief history and context. My job today, how I view it is I want to lay the foundation for uh, the rest of the sermon series in Hosea, which is crazy. You know, I just said 88 days until Thanksgiving. When we finish up Hosea, we finish Hosea and we start Advent, <laughs> okay? That's crazy to me. But I want to lay the foundation to build upon for the next 14 weeks of us. So my question is, where are we in the biblical history? Where are we on the timeline of the Bible? Well, so this is a flyby. It starts in creation, right? Adam and Eve, they are removed from Eden and from there, the whole world is only evil. Flood washes over the earth. Hope's com- hope comes through Noah, right? Starting over, God makes a covenant with Noah that he, will no longer, um, he would no longer eradicate the earth from people. And through the line of Noah, his son Shem, comes a man, Abraham, who another promise is coming. This leads us into the time of the patriarchs. The patriarchs, Adam, or Abraham, Abraham takes Isaac to the mount to, to sacrifice him. Isaac has Jacob and a hairy man named Esau, his other son. The, the blessing continues through Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, the apple of his eye, which he gives a coat of many colors. His son Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers uh, to Egypt because they were jealous of their, the dad's favor upon them. Jo- uh, Joseph re- rises through the ranks in the empire of Egypt, becomes prime minister of Egypt, and leads them into a period of prosperity uh, during, through a famine and re- uh, provides relief to the, to the country of Israel, to the people of Israel. After he dies, a new pharaoh is installed and doesn't like what's happening, right? He sees the mass of the Israelite people and is uncomfortable with their, their amount, so he enslaves them. And a part of, in his insecurity and a part of his dictatorship, he rules that all firstborn children are to die, uh, all the firstborn. And so this is where we get the story. Moses, Moses uh, is sent off in a, in a little basket, a miniature ark, down the river he is picked up by the king the pharaohs uh, and so he he's rises up through the ranks he murders someone he is eventually called into god's service and he leads the people out of slavery to the wilderness this is the exodus right so we're at exodus then again fly by we're flying by here exodus happens there's wandering in the wilderness Twelve tribes are uh, formed, and in these twelve tribes, eventually the Ten Commandments are given at Mount Sinai. There's a continued wandering, but God sets up the practice of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the the place where God's presence dwells uh, amongst the people as they await the promised land to enter. Moses is cut short in that, but the people of God are led into the promised land by Joshua, and through 
uh, this, but things are still not good, right? As they are in the promised land, God raises up judges to lead Israel in the ways of the Lord in return to righteousness, but people grow tired and want for themselves a king. As these judges are raised up, I had a seminary professor tell me one time that if you want a great snapshot, a microcosm of the whole Old Testament, read Judges, because the, the pattern of Judges is, uh, you'll, you'll read things like, and they did everything evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the Judges raised up and ushers them back into righteousness. So at the end of Judges, they were desirous of a king. We want a king to lead our people. They didn't care so much about righteousness, but they cared much more about having something that the world has, a king. So God gave them a king like the world, not like himself in the King Saul. He was a jealous man. He was a jealous man specifically of a young shepherd boy who was anointed by the Lord, King David, who was a musician turned war machine. And God and, and Saul hated him. He was very jealous of him and even his relationship with his son, Jonathan. Uh, from here, David is installed. King David considered the godliest man, a man after God's own heart. Not a perfect king by any means, but he seeks after the Lord and is blessed. His son, Solomon, as takes over, he's the wisest king, most famously. He builds the temple in Jerusalem for God's glory to fill. He has a son, Rehoboam, who the kingdom is torn from, ending the united monarchy, and the kingdom splits. The kingdom splits to the north, and the kingdom splits to the south. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And that is where we are today. <sighs> okay? Hosea is a prophet. In the time of the kings, after the division of the monarchy into this northern and southern kingdom, God is raising up prophets as a mouthpiece unto the Lord to bring them unto, similar to judges, to bring them into account, to bring them back to God. The north and the southern kingdom had rampant sin, Rampant idol worship. They forgot where they stood for in the Lord. The southern kingdom, however, named Judah, as you would recall, if you remember your Bible stories, the line of Judah is the line where the Messiah would come from. So Judah had seasons of repentance and righteousness following unto the Lord where the northern kingdom trusted much more in the things of the earth, things of the world, in material possessions, and very, very sad idolatry, injustice, child sacrifice, witchcraft, spiritism, mediums, and barbaric evils that happened. This is unto the north. So this is where we land. We're here. Hosea. It's the foundation. Okay? Hosea, he was a prophet to speak to the people of the northern kingdom. We pulled our subtitle, if you saw on the little video, from kind of this idea of a wayward people and the God who calls them home. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets, and his name means salvation. It means to be saved. This is a variant of the form of Josiah, I'm sorry, Joshua, of Joshua. Now I say minor prophet, but I mean Minor in no way of value or importance, but simply size. 
Okay? There are four major prophets, uh, five if, if we in kind of include Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel. In Lamentations, Jeremiah is considered the author of Lamentations. Each of those, because of their sheer size, they were written on their own separate scroll. Whereas all of the minor prophets, there are 12 minor prophets, all 12 of them are written on a single scroll, Hosea being the longest. And if you kind of look at the uh, minor prophets just in sheer length, Hosea is the longest of the minor prophet, therefore it's first. In the Hebrew Bible, it is one scroll, the Hebrew Bible calls them the 12. You hear the 12, we're talking of the minor prophets. I got a quote from a theologian. Robert Chisholm, this is what he said about this. Each of the prophets accused God's people of violating the obligations of the Mosaic Covenant and warned that judgment was impending. Despite painting such a bleak picture of the immediate future, these prophets also saw a bright light at the end of the dark tunnel of punishment and exile. Each anticipated a time when the Lord, on the basis of his eternal covenantal promises to Abraham and David, would restore Israel to a position of favor and blessing. So church, as we enter this book, Israel was experiencing peace and prosperity, prosperity, but this was just a facade. It looked good on the outside, but internally they were running to things to fill them that were not of the Lord. They abandoned God in favor of idols, so God sent Hosea to warn his people and to win them back. Verse 2, verses 2 through 9. In my notes, I kind of wrote this as a section called Family Matters. All right? Family Matters. We were introduced to four people, Gomer and three children. So here's the thing. is God uses, you know, you, you kind of read this, uh, this chapter and you're like, oh boy, these names are not... Ideal names, right? They're probably not the most popular uh, Hebrew names of the time because they're, you know, full of wrath and judgment. God uses the names of the children as prophecy, representing the coming of his judgment. But God does this in Isaiah, and we later see Jesus change names. He, he calls Peter the rock, and he changes the name from Saul to Paul. So this is a familiar thing. But the names of Hosea's children were to be a reminder to everyone of the broken relationship that existed between God and his people. is a permanent, lasting reminder of these children's name, names. We see in the names that God commands them to give their children just how upset he had become at his chosen people. So let's look at Gomer. Gomer, she is the adulterer. And it is unsure, scholars can debate back and forth. For everything I studied and read, um, it is uncertain if before marriage, if she was an adulterer, but there's very little skepticism that after marriage she had become an adulterer, even to the point of selling herself into prostitution, playing the harlot. Verse 2, God says even, For the land has been unfaithful. And what I want you to know about this is essentially you can substitute the name Israel for Gomer in this book and the story still checks out. It's very, very much the same. God is comparing disloyalty and idolatry to spiritual adultery. And we see that in the life of Gomer. First off, Jezreel. 
This is a son that Hosea, or I'm sorry, Gomer bears Hosea. His name means to scatter, kind of like sowing seed that God scatters. And doing a little research on what this, in verses 4 through 5, we read, Jehu, the king at the time, he is at a war, and, and Jezreel was, is not a person's name first. Jezreel was a location. And there was a war fought here, and the king at the time, Jehu, he beat the bad guys. He did a good job beating the bad guys, but in his bloodlust, he also destroyed all of the good guys, seeking power, devourous of uh, wanting his own kingdom to be built. He killed the good guys, but then he also slaughtered the bad guys. This was all done in a town, like I said, called Jezreel. God says, I will scatter and I will break the bow of Israel. That was meant to be to understand the military power of Israel. He is going to break the power of Israel's army and military presence with this prophecy of the impending Assyrian Empire coming in to conquer. This was foreshadowing, of course. After Jezreel, we have another doozy of a name. Call her No Mercy. Right? I don't name your kid No Mercy. Uh, the, the Hebrew name is Lo Ruhama, means no mercy or not loved, not going to receive compassion. This is in verses 6 and 7. For a people of God who had hung on the truth of his love and compassion and mercy, reciting the stories, doing the festivals, doing all of the things, they persisted in unfaithfulness to God and his covenant, and this, the continuing compassion, this is supposed to be a symbol of God's discontentment. Now, it's unclear here, I have to say this, it's unclear if this child is... Hosea's. At this point in their marriage, Gomer had ran off and had begun having affairs with multiple men for money and for whatever. So we don't know if this child is Hosea's. It's hard to put yourself in Hosea's shoes there, right? The pain expressed not knowing where his wife is and to the point of uncertainty of, is this daughter even mine? You know, where, where a reality show would swoon for ratings about this. This is a guy's life being impacted, and being used. Hosea had to live with the grief and shame that his wife brought. In verse 7, there's comparison that he would show compassion to the southern kingdom of Judah, who at the time had multiple godly kings in a row. Like I, I mentioned, the, the arc of the story of the southern kingdom was much more hopeful than that of the northern kingdom with which we are receiving this prophecy in Hosea. They trusted in the Lord in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom trusted in their strength and numbers, their geographical location, their size, their military presence, and they even hedged their bets. <clears throat> Excuse me. They hedged their bets by trusting in the might of other gods and worshipped Baal, other idols of the area. So 
God says, no more mercy. No more mercy. After it says that Gomer had weaned, no mercy, she then um, bore, it says, name him not my people. Again, don't know if that's on the list of uh, baby names as you search them on, you know, Google. The Hebrew name, Lo Ami, it means not my people. And this is literally, as people heard this, this is literally a reversal saying, I am not, I am to you. Saying this to the people of God, I am not, I am to you. He withdraws, God withdraws his protection from them. The names and judgments of gods are more severe with each child as we see. And this is what should have been the final nail in the coffin for the nation. This represented a break in the relationship so severe that it threatens the covenant that he made with Abraham. Right? So this is bad news. One commentator put it like this. The collective impact of these four names in this message is this. Israel's unfaithfulness had become so obnoxious to Yahweh that he would not tolerate her any longer. This is a real deal anger. This is real deal sorrow from the Lord. And we need to receive that as well. But verse 10 and 11 come. And I'm wrapping up. In my notes I put, and yet hope. Verse 10 says this, Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. Verse 11, And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Wow. Relief. Hope. Douglas Stewart, an author and professor uh, over at Gordon-Conwell, he says this in his uh, commentary on Hosea. He says this, Hosea 1, verses 2 through 9, functions of a summarizing preface of the entire book. It presents an overview in stark and moving terms of the prophet's proportionately dominant message. God has given up his people. The theme of restoration after this judgment then follows immediately. Amen. Is this not our story? We are buried beneath our rebellion. Lost without hope of redemption. Blind in our need for a savior. Oh, but God. Chapter 10, I'm sorry, verse 10 uh, that we just read, it actually, in the Hebrew Bible, it starts chapter 2. And I kind of like that picture. It's kind of turning a new page. We hear this warning in verses 1 through 9, this judgment, this declaration of the names. And as we get there, we turn the page and we hear this hope of redemption. From an, although grieved, a loving Father and Lord. God taught Hosea and the nation the seriousness of this unfaithfulness and how he felt about it through the prophet's own marriage. 
Hosea experienced the tragedy and heartbreak of an unfaithful wife, not just an adulteress, but an adulteress who turned prostitute. Now this, God demonstrates how committed to his people and his promise, and he instructs Hosea to relate to his wife in the same way. The picture of Hosea and how he's dealt with his, what's fallen into his lap is a picture that God has unto the nation. Hosea must have felt the most unutterable sorrow that a man can feel. Right? Speaking on behalf of men. For this to happen, his wife has abandoned and to abandon him, but to learn of how she has abandoned him. This cuts at the core. Right? So over the past uh, uh, over the past year and a half. I let you in a little bit to life outside of these walls, and uh, I've had the displeasure of walking through a very, very difficult time with um, someone that I care very, very dearly for, a, a man, uh, a brother of mine who lives far away, but over the last year and a half shares a very similar, a very eerie story of that of Hosea. His wife has done incredible atrocities. So to him, I've been a pastor. To him, I've been a shepherd. To him, I've been a counselor at times. And, and sometimes I've also just been a hurting friend with my boy. Something I've never, ever would have imagined that this would happen to. And I was like, I remember a conversation early on, and I was like, man, what do you want to do? Like, what's going on? How can I help? Like, what's the plan? And I'll never, ever forget what he said. He said, you know, Brett, if it wasn't for God staying when I didn't, if it wasn't for God coming to me when I was running away, if it wasn't for God bringing me back when I wasn't worth it, I would be nowhere. He said, I believe God is calling me to do this for my wife. I will stay. I will go after and I will fight for her in our marriage. Waterworks. You know what I mean? I'm just, we're sitting in a room together and we're just, I've never seen, I've never been a part of such a clearer picture of not only Hosea, how he relates to Gomer, but a picture of the greater Hosea, Jesus. The greater rescuer, the greater pursuer, the greater one who despite our sin loves us still. This all represents this in Hebrew called chesed, love. This loyal love that remains committed to those whom he has chosen regardless of of their commitment to him. That's hard. That's hard, right? But we know, and we see it here in verse 11, we know the greater Hosea. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10 says this, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We get glimpses here of Jesus in the Old Testament during the rule of the northern kingdom from this, this guy whose life is in shambles, right? Right? We often say 
at Mercy's Door, if you've been with us for any amount of time, that if you come here, you are going to end up hearing the same sermon. Okay? It doesn't matter what text we're in, doesn't matter what book you're, we're in, you are going to end up hearing the same sermon. And that, that sermon is Christ's perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect rising, and is now seated, ascended, taking away our sin and shame forever. Amen? You're going to hear that in every sermon if you come to Mercy's Door. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry, it's going to happen. I'm not sorry. But here's the thing. The thread from the Old Testament throughout the Bible is summed up in Jesus' gospel. Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered community, Christ-centered mission. And we see here in verse 11, these three judgments in name form, right? Jezreel, no mercy, not my people. We see in Jesus the reversal of all three. We see specifically from his high priestly prayer. We just got through John, right? I'm going to dip back into it. John 17, his high priestly prayer, he talks about unifying and bringing his, his people together as one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. He says, they, the people of God, will become perfectly one. Where there was rejection, now there will be union. Reversing, God will scatter. My love will be in them and I in them. He gives mercy. Matthew 5 said, blessed are the merciful. Look at his life, his healings, his provisions, his comfort to the poor and the powerless. He even forgives his executioners. He shows mercy to his people. He reverses this prophecy of judgment. And he says, they are my people. John 10, my sheep hear me and they know me. And I am theirs. Jesus Christ looks upon the church and he says, mine. These are my people. Romans 5, 8, one of my favorite passages. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for you to clean your life up. He didn't wait for you to get the answers you need. He didn't wait for you to start seeking him. He died for you while you were sinning, while you were in your shame and guilt. Hosea's response to Gomer is supposed to be a sermon. Just as Hosea keeps Loving his unfaithful wife, so God continues to love his unfaithful people. In conclusion, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they had visions <clears throat> excuse me, from the Lord that called God's people to action. God gave them visions to share. God gave Hosea a marriage. He gave Hosea a marriage to share. And this is what I came up with in conclusion. What we see through the book of Hosea, and even as we get glimpses now, there are three points. Number one, it pains God when we are unfaithful to him. It pains him when we are unfaithful to him. Number two, sin must be punished. It must be held to an account. 
And three, God will never stop loving what is His. So we celebrate this morning and every morning that found in Christ we are His children. Thanks to God that we live on this side of that payment being fulfilled in Jesus, but for Hosea and his contemporaries, it was going to get much, much worse before it got better. That's where we are. Book of Hosea. Strap in. We're going in. 13 more weeks uncovering God's bringing his wayward people back to himself. Let's pray.